Now, don't be too nervous. I assure you I preach the same gospel that Bo preaches, that Paul preaches, but the only difference you will find is I'm a Baptist and I am going to stand right here. I'm not going to move one inch. If, if I start wandering this way or that way, get me to come back because I will be rambling. So I do not have that gift like them. Well, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Colossians. New Testament book of Colossians. Today we're going to be focusing on Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1 verses 24 through 29. 24 through 29. And as you turn there, I want you to think about your favorite mystery writer of all time, or your favorite mystery movie, if you're not a reader. Okay? For me, the greatest mystery writer of all time is Agatha Christie. Raise your hand if you've read an Agatha Christie book, seen a movie, know who she is. She is the greatest mystery writer of all time. She wrote, wrote in fact, the most famous mystery books of all time, such as Murder on the Orient Express. You may know that one. And Then There Were None. That's her most top-selling. And Death on the Nile, which was just made into a movie. In each one of these, her famous detective Perot seeks to find the motives of everyone involved and he works his way down to the culprit of the crime and he solves the murder. We humans, we love mysteries. But what is it about mysteries that make us so interested in them? If you've not noticed, try going to Half Price Books. I did it this week to make sure I wasn't lying. See the endless shelves of mystery books. Shelf after shelf after shelf, hundreds of them, far outnumbering any other genre. Or try turning on Netflix, or any streaming service for that matter, and notice how many different mystery categories there are to choose from. And I'm going to put up on the screen a few actual categories. Countryside crime, chili thrillers, mystery, fan favorite mysteries, top mysteries, time period mysteries. We love mysteries because they make us feel suspense. They have us on the edge of our seat, and then they give us the indescribable feeling of finally putting two and two together to realize who the murderer is. But the truth is, God made us to love mysteries. Isn't that weird? In fact, God chose the concept of mystery himself to reveal how he chose to redeem the fallen world. Paul, in our passage today, he then picks up on this theme in Colossians, and he shows that God's mystery is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's really the main theme of today. And then he takes that, using Christ as the fulfillment of the mystery, and he gives three orders for how individual Christians like you and like me should commit our lives to taking the revealed mystery of Christ to the world. So with all of this in mind, let's read what Paul wrote. Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So the first order that Paul gives for Christians to follow is proclaim Christ. Found in verse 28, proclaim Christ. So if you remember last Sunday, Pastor Bo preached over, over Jesus telling his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. By this, Jesus is saying that there's such a need for people Faithful Christians to go out into the world as harvest workers. But the issue is, yet, few are willing to put in the work required. Jesus then tells his disciples to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, that he might send out laborers into the harvest, into the world. In today's passage, Paul tells us what these harvest workers are called to take to the world. Verse 28 says, Him we proclaim. He's obviously talking about Christ. We must proclaim Christ to the world. And this sounds pretty obvious to us today, some 2,000 years after Christ's time on earth. But think about what Paul says just before this, starting in verse 25. To make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul is saying that the one thing he strives for is to make this mystery fully known. This mystery was hidden for ages and for generations. But what does he mean by this? Well, he's talking about the hundreds of prophecies, hundreds about the coming Messiah, the Savior of Israel. The Old Testament hides or it conceals a lot about the one that God has chosen to send to redeem his people. In these very prophecies, and we'll go through a few, we read God's own mystery novel. The beginning of the mystery begins in Genesis 3.15 when God curses the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve into sin. He tells the serpent that as a result of this, of his tempting Adam and Eve, he will crawl on his belly and eat dust the rest of his life. But what God says next is the first mention of the gospel in the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The mystery is, who is this head-bruising seed of Eve? And who is the heel-bruising offspring of the serpent? God solved the mystery for us at the cross and at the empty tomb. The devil, he struck a death blow when Jesus was killed. He thought he won, but the empty tomb turned the tide completely when Christ arose victorious. And in this, the mystery is revealed, and we should therefore proclaim Christ and Christ alone. But there's even more to the mystery, and it continues with the seed of Eve. 
When we fast forward to God's covenant with Abraham, we see the word seed used to describe this coming redeemer. Through Abraham's seed, Genesis says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, who is this seed? That is the mystery we're trying to solve. But thankfully, God answers this mystery in Galatians 3.16 through Paul, who he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, in two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. We see yet again that the revelation of God's mystery was always and will be Jesus Christ. And the mystery and its revelation occur again and again in the Bible. And let's look at a couple of them. Here's just a few. Jacob prophesied that Judah would rule over his brothers. How was this mystery revealed? Well, Luke writes that Jesus Christ is the king of the tribe of Judah. Moses promised that another prophet like him would come and that God would atone for his people. Jesus fulfills both by being our prophet and our priest who himself atoned for our sins on the cross. Next, God promised David that his offspring will rule forever. Jesus is the son of David and he will reign forever. God said that he would make David his firstborn, king over everything. Well, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. God promised a stumbling stone that people would trip over. Jesus is the stone that people have tripped over. God promised to send a son who would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Jesus is the son who is called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah wrote of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who would be crushed for the iniquity of his people, though he was perfect. That his wounds would bring life to the guilty. That he would be beaten, crushed, spit upon. That the innocent would be killed in the place of the wretched sinner. His blood would be shed for his people, and by his stripes they will be saved. Jesus fulfills every bit of this. These are just a few of literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies where the mystery found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So why take the time to go through these prophecies? Well, because each of these prophecies are part of God's mystery novel of redeeming his people. If you read a whodunit mystery novel... You can't wait to get to the end. Sometimes along the way you get lost in the twists and the turns of the plot. Characters show up and they confuse you. You're not really sure how they fit into the plot. But you race ahead one page after another to the end. You have to discover how it all ends. But you see, this is exactly how God's mystery plays out in Scripture. His prophecies spread out over hundreds and even thousands of years. They all point in different ways to the same mysterious promised one that God would send. Who is he? Now quickly, back to point number one, proclaim Christ. Paul says that through this, though that this mystery was hidden for ages and generations, 26, it is now revealed 
to his saints. How amazing is this? We know who the mystery is. We don't have to wonder anymore. We know who all of these prophecies point to. Christ is the great and full fulfillment. So what do we do? What does Paul tell Christians to do? Verse 28, proclaim this mystery to the world. Go, tell people, proclaim Christ. Church, this is what we proclaim to a dying world. We proclaim that Christ Jesus, the mystery now revealed, has come and made a way for sinners to be saved. Proclaim Christ. Proclaim the gospel to a dying world. And you ask, what is the gospel? Seems like a simple question, yet so many reject it. The gospel is the good news that God has sent his only son because he loved the world. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God being rich in mercy abounding in steadfast love. He sent his son Jesus into the world that he made to take on flesh that he created, to live a perfect life of righteousness, never sinning one time, and willingly choosing to suffer on the cross for the guilty. That's you and that's me. Very guilty. On the cross, the righteous was slain for the unrighteous. The perfect man, the only perfect man, was slain for the imperfect sinner. The spotless Lamb of God was put forth as the final sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. Our sins were nailed to the cross of Christ, no more to be remembered. They're cast away as far as the east is from the west. This should make us cry, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. His death, his wounds... His blood, the nails going into his hands, the spear going into his side. Every bit of this was washing our sins away. Christ's body was placed in a tomb and it was kept there until God raised him from the dead on the third day. We believe this. We believe that he crushed the head of the ancient serpent and fulfilled God's mysterious words of prophecy in the Garden of Eden. These are the gospel facts. Have you, have you repented of your sins? And have you believed in this gospel? Do you live by this gospel? Do you proclaim this gospel? And for those of us who have already believed in Christ, we are called to proclaim this gospel, this Christ, to a dying world, to share the gospel far and wide. But what comes next? And this leads to our second point. Paul teaches us to grow in Christ. We proclaim Christ, but we're called to grow in Christ. He says, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How can we proclaim Christ if we ourselves don't know Christ too well? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that pastors and elders must teach the people of their church to grow in Christ. Not just believe in Him, but grow in Him. Or they'll never be able to proclaim Christ. So how can you and I grow in Christ? Here's just three very simple ways on how we can grow in Christ. Number one, hear the Word. 
This means hear the word of God preached, hear it read aloud. And you ask yourself, where does this happen? Church. It happens at church. And you will not grow in Christ unless you commit to being a faithful church member the rest of your life. God set this up. You are all here today because you are committed to coming to church and serving God with this family. That's the important first step. The local church is the primary place that God established for his people to grow. Why? Because the living and active word of God is preached in this church. Our hearts are changed by the spirit of God through the preached word of God. It's a living word. It's an active word. Pastor Bo rolls up his sleeves all week long and he works hard to preach God's word. While we're out in the world working hard at our jobs, Pastor Bo is here working hard at his job. His job is to give us what we need to grow in Christ. His job is not to make you and me feel good about ourselves. His job is not to share great inspirational messages on how to live your best life now. No, our pastor's job is to preach the word of God to us so that we can grow in Christ and see the beauty of our Savior. We should come here every Sunday ready to learn, ready to listen, and ready to grow in Christ. So come to church and hear the word. That's the first one. Second, how can you grow in Christ? Read the word. Now, Pastor Bo does a great job of preaching every single Sunday. But he only has 52 Sundays a year to preach. And if you've not noticed, there's 365 days in a year. Are 52 feedings enough to keep us thriving and growing in Christ? No, we must try to read God's word at home every day that we can. We must make it our part, part of our daily routine, just like eating breakfast or brushing your teeth or taking a shower, which most of you youth boys should probably start doing. <laughs> There's wonderful reading plans out there that help. If you're like me, I get lost, I'm not sure what book to read. Reading plans are wonderful. They tell you exactly what to read every day. Ask Pastor Bo. He has some you can have. And, and, and just do it. Pick one and do it. Maybe read two or three chapters a day before heading out to the door, uh, heading out the door to work and just slowly push your way through God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Maybe before bed you read a chapter or two if you can't in the morning. And just slowly work your way because he will grow you as you read his word. Even when you get to books that are difficult, like Leviticus, Numbers, those books have beauty in them, but they're also sometimes really slow. Lots of laws, lots of repeating over and over. But just like when working out gets difficult, we have to push through and find that you will grow from doing this. Read the Word. And third, how can you grow in Christ? Pray the Word. When church people are honest, if you're like me, they almost always admit that they're frustrated with their prayer life. I think you'll admit, like me, that you don't pray as often as you probably should. We end up praying for the exact same things over and over, and it's usually just for our immediate family and ourselves, which is okay to pray for. But then we start to feel a little guilty, or we simply just get bored praying for the same things. So we end up not praying very often. Am I the only one that has struggled with this? So a great solution to growing in your prayer life is simply to pray the word. And what does this mean? 
One of my seminary professors, Dr. Donald Whitney, wrote a small little book about this called Praying the Bible, in which he teaches the value of praying God's Word. So pray through the Psalms, for example, he says. You may ask yourself, why in the world would we want to do that? Well, when he taught us how to do this in class, he told us to take Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and he told us to go outside and find a spot alone on the beautiful Southern Seminary campus in Louisville and pray through this psalm. At first, I was very confused. I had no idea what he meant. I had no idea if this would help or not. But you begin with the first verse by reading it, and then you pray based on the content of that verse. So if you come across a verse that's kind of difficult or uh, a psalm in, in its entirety that's kind of difficult, you simply skip it and go to the next. It's, it's not a big deal. But if you do this, I was amazed at how much it improved what I was praying for. And it helped me want to pray more often because I had a guide in me right in front of me that I could follow. The Lord is my shepherd. I was using the Bible's topics and the Bible's truths to guide how I prayed and what I prayed for. Instead of relying on my own mind that wanders, trying to think of things as I prayed. So as a review, A, hear the word. Two, read the word. And C, pray the word. This is how we grow in Christ. The Holy Spirit will actually sanctify us. He will sanctify you and me when we interact with the word of God. So to illustrate this point, I want everybody to think of a bucket. Think of a bucket of water. Uh, imagine your Christian life as this bucket of water. As you proclaim Christ to those around you, as you disciple believers around you, as you teach the truths of God to your children, in all of these things, you are pouring water, spiritual water, from your Christian bucket into other people's buckets. So this is a great thing to do. But what happens if you're not replenishing your own bucket of water? It will run dry, and you will burn out. You must take the time, I must take the time, to fill up my own Christian bucket before I can pour into others. This is crucial. And you ask, how do you do it? You do this by going to church to hear the Word of God preached, by reading the Word on your own throughout the week, and by praying the Word. In each of these, your bucket is filled, and you will grow in Christ as you interact with his word. So far, we've seen that Christians are called to proclaim Christ to the world, and they're called to grow in Christ in their lives. Third and finally, and much shorter, third, live for Christ. Live for Christ. Paul's final words in this chapter give us a great model for how to live for Christ today. And they really sum up everything we've talked about this morning. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you see it? Living for Christ became everything for Paul. This man persecuted Christians and now it is the beat of his heart to live for Christ. It's his passion. It's what he thought about, what he worked for, what he invested his time and his energy in. And you and I will never live for Christ until we give our hearts, our hearts to Christ. What I mean by this is that our hearts drive our lives. Our hearts 
drive our passions. What we love in our hearts determines what we think about, what we spend money on, what we spend our time doing, and what we value the most. And this is why Scripture warns us in Proverbs, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Are you wasting your time, your talent, and your treasure? Check your heart. Are you pouring yourself into good things, but not the best thing? Check your heart. Are you frustrated with your walk in Christ? When you're honest with yourself, do you admit that you aren't exactly living for Christ every day? Well, He reigns as the Lord in the throne room of our soul, but we crowd in constantly a lot of other lords, a lot of other relationships, success, possessions, reputation. This is true of all of us because we're sinners, which is why Paul reminds us to live for Christ. Paul described how he handled his past failures and his hope for future growth. He said in Philippians, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. None of us have lived for Christ the way we would like to. I think we can all admit that. But we can start fresh this morning. Why? Because God loves to show mercy to his children. He loves to show his steadfast love to his children. Have you thought about this? When you sin, when you don't do what you deserve to do, God is not looking at you with an evil, angry face. He cannot wait to show you mercy and love and sanctify us in the process and bring us back to him. So we should repent and forget what lies behind in our lives. And instead, we should strain forward to what lies ahead by living for Christ. Now, let's be honest. If you're reading through this and you notice Paul describes living for Christ, he used words such as toil and struggling. So living for Christ doesn't sound easy. At least it wasn't for Paul. And sometimes living for Christ actually draws mistreatment from the world. Have you ever been judged for being a Christian? Maybe somebody at work found out that you go to church and they made fun of you for it. Maybe you finally worked up the courage to share the gospel with somebody you know, and they respond in a harsh way. Maybe it damaged your relationship and made things awkward afterwards. When you are struggling with these kinds of situations, what do you do? What do you do when suffering comes and it tests your faith? When a family member randomly dies? When a family member randomly gets sick? When you lose your job, when you have major issues with your spouse, or when your kids run from the Lord, when all of these things happen, and some of them will happen, do you toil and struggle with everything in you to live for Christ? When these things happen, do you still toil and struggle to proclaim Christ, to grow in Christ? Do you respond like Paul does in this first verse, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. You see, Paul knew what to do when he was weighed down, when he was in prison multiple times, 
when he was mocked constantly and constantly hated on. He says in Philippians chapter 1, For me, to live is Christ. And what? To die is gain. He says in our text this morning, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul takes the focus off of him and puts it on Christ in everything. And let this encourage you and me today that when we live for Christ, we are supplied with his energy, with the energy that comes from God. God powerfully works his energy within us. This gives us strength for each new day and each new trial. When suffering comes, you can live for Christ by resting on his strength. So because this is missions month, what better way to close our service than to tell a missionary story that reflects everything we've talked about this morning? Because our text this morning, it describes living our lives on mission for Christ. I believe few have struggled and toiled more for Christ's sake than missionaries have throughout church history. These faithful men and women, they know what it means to forsake all, to take up their cross, and to follow Jesus. They know what it means to proclaim him, to grow in him, and to live for him. And some say all Christians are missionaries to those around them. I couldn't disagree more. We're called to witness to those around us. But our witnessing here in Arlington, Texas, will never compare to what so many missionaries have faced for the sake of Christ throughout history. So many of you are familiar. Raise your hand if you've heard the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. A lot of people have heard that one. This is a classic from my childhood, but have you ever heard the story behind this hymn? So about 150 years ago, there was a massive revival in Wales. And this resulted in a lot of missionaries going to northeast India to proclaim Christ. They went to a region known as Assam, and it was a very primitive and aggressive uh, place toward outsiders. Had not been reached. Very hostile, a very dangerous place to be a missionary. And yet into these tribes, a faithful group of Baptist missionaries from England, they went and they began to spread the gospel. So obviously, they are met with a lot of opposition and a lot of angry leaders who are not happy that they are there. But one of the missionaries successfully led a man named Noksang, if I'm saying that correctly, Noksang, his wife, and his two children to the Lord. They were all saved. And through this one family's conversion, many in the villages began to be saved. Faith in Christ began to spread like wildfire. And as a result of this, as you can imagine, the pagan chief is furious, thinking, who is coming up into our village and sharing this thing about a man that lived 2,000 years ago? So he called a town meeting, and he brought all the villages together, all the people like this. And then he demanded that they bring that first family who had been converted to renounce their faith publicly or face death. So Nock saying, the new Christian, the first family, he replies... I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, this only made the chief angrier. So he commanded his archers to shoot down the man's two children right in front of him. And as both 
of the boys lay twitching, dying on the ground. The chief asked again, Will you deny your faith? You have lost both your children. You will lose your wife too. And the Christian replied, Though no one joins me, still will I follow. At this point, the chief was completely furious with anger. He was fuming, and he commanded his archers to shoot the man's wife. Then the chief asked one final time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith, and you will live. This new believer who had just seen his two children and his wife slain before him, they're lying right here on the ground, he replies to the chief, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. He was then shot and killed just like his family. This Christian man lived for Christ in this short time that God had him on earth. He never once rejected his faith, but he chose to proclaim Christ in every situation. How was he able to do this? I don't think I could have done it. Unless he was being supplied with strength from the Holy Spirit. And that is how he said it. And through this man's unwavering faith, guess what happened in the village after his death? The chief, who had just ordered this family to be killed, was moved by the man's faith. This is what he said. As the bodies are laying here, why should this man, his wife, and two children die for a man who lived in a faraway land on another continent some 2,000 years ago? There must be some remarkable power behind the family's faith. And I, too, want to taste that faith. And so all of a sudden, before the dead bodies and the crowd of people who had just watched him kill them, the chief declared with a loud voice, I, too, belong to Jesus Christ. Then when the crowd heard this from their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. The final words of this man were taken by the villagers and they turned it into a song. And today, this song is still the song of the Garo people, where it came from. All because of a man named Noxang who trusted in his Savior to provide everything he needed. So I ask you, have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins? That he rose again to secure your salvation? That he leads you in this life and that he truly is coming back to take you to a land of no more suffering, no more struggling, no more toiling, and no more death. Do you believe in Jesus? And for those of us who have already been saved, do you live your life with the cross before you and the world behind you? Do you live like the world or do you live like Jesus? If you are in Christ, there's no turning back. Now, going forth, we're called to proclaim Christ, to grow in Christ, and to live for Christ. Because we have decided to follow Jesus. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we thank you for saving us. We thank you that we are able to proclaim you, to grow in you, and to live for you, all being supplied by your strength that comes from your spirit. Lord, we pray that the word preached today would not return void and that you will work in our hearts. Sanctify us. Save us daily. Renew us. That we may live lives of faith like the man in the Garo tribe. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.